Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm so happy to have all of you with us for another edition of our show today. Um, I think by all accounts, you'd have to say that 2022 was a very good year for Governor Brian Kemp. Um, he won a landslide victory, as everybody knows, over David Perdue in the, in the uh, Republican primary for governor. Of course, Perdue, the hand-picked candidate of Donald Trump, who's held a grudge against Brian Kemp ever since Kemp refused to engage with him in the efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. And then Kemp went on to win a very substantial victory over Democrat Stacey Abrams, who really carried with her the hopes of Georgia Democrats for being the face of the future when it comes to being able to win statewide elections. And it wasn't long after Brian Kemp Uh, won those two important elections, that he began looking beyond Georgia. And um, we're going to talk today about exactly the moves that he has made, what's behind them, where is Brian Kemp potentially headed next. And first of all, to do that, I'm going to be joined by my Wednesday partner on Political Rewind from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Bluestein, who probably has spent more time covering Brian Kemp than I think any other reporter I, I know. Hello, Greg. Glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I've actually covered Brian Kemp since 2002 when he was running for the state Senate, and I was a reporter for the Red and Black at the independent student newspaper out in UGA. Well, I rest my case. Our special guest, Greg, as you well know who we're going to talk to today, is uh, one of Brian Kemp's most important uh, advisors, uh, Cody uh, 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 Hall, who has been for many, many years uh, 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 involved with Kemp as a candidate and as his communications director. Cody, you're now a partner at Full Focus Communications, which is a consulting firm that you began as you left the official governor's office. And you've become the executive director of Hardworking Americans, which is the national PAC that Governor Kemp and you all established after he won uh, these victories in Georgia. So, Cody, um, thank you, first of all, for being with us today. We're going to talk about the governor's future, and uh, you're the right guy to do it. How are you doing, Cody? I'm doing great, Bill. Well, thanks for having me. And and Greg has known the governor far longer than I have. So, uh, um, All right, let's get right to it. Um, and Greg, of course, I want you to jump in uh, as soon as possible. L- let's point out a few of the things that have happened in uh, Brian Kemp's life since he won those elections. He's launched a super PAC, which you, Cody, are overseeing, called Hardworking Americans, which is designed to raise money for federal races. He went to the World Economic Forum in uh, Davos, a gathering of some of the most important leaders in uh, world politics and beyond in in corporate uh, 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 international affairs. He's been at a number of uh, 
events in various cities for high-rolling GOP donors, and perhaps most important of all, on several occasions, including a very uh, highly publicized interview on CNN, he uh, said it's time for the Republican Party to move beyond Donald Trump and look to the future. So, Cody, my first question for you is, what, what is all of this telling us about what Brian Kemp sees as his future beyond Georgia. He clearly has decided that being governor of Georgia is not his last stop in politics, right? I don't know that you can say that for sure, um, but I'll start by saying that, you know, I think more than anybody in the country, the governor and his family have had an interesting last few years. Um, they've been very tough. They've been, um, you know, I was talking to a reporter the other day that um, had asked me in in mid 2021 if I was sending around my resume looking for a new job, given the political um, challenges that my boss would be facing over the next 18 to 24 months. And I said, no, I'm not. But I, re I reminded that reporter he had asked me that um, a few days ago. Um, but look, I, I think the governor has done something very unique in politics. Um, he has he has governed a, as a conservative in the Trump era, um, but he has also defeated a Trump-backed primary challenge and then went ahead and defeated um, for the second time um, a rising star in the Democratic Party, um, overwhelmingly the second time. Um, so I think that that for folks across the country makes him a very interesting person to talk about and to talk to. I think for um, the governor and his family, they have earned the right to be considered for a whole host of things, in my opinion. Obviously, I'm biased, but given everything that they've went through and how they've conducted themselves and how they've continued to win and deliver results for the people of Georgia, I, I think they've deserved um, a platform to speak their mind about where they see the, the party and the country going. And I think that's what you're seeing now, that the governor um, has an opinion about a lot of different things happening to the party and the country, but also our state. And so he's not going to be shy about voicing that opinion. Cody, when when hardworking Americans was first announced, Politico uh, ran a story and uh, you were quoted in it. And in that quote, you said that that pack would, quote, support candidates who have a backbone who are principled conservatives and who put the hardworking men and women of this country first. First of all, what does it mean supporting candidates who have a backbone? I think that's up to the eye of the beholder at the end of the day. But, you know, um, I know the governor um, is, is interested in supporting candidates across the country that um, make our party more diverse. Um, but they also... Um, know how to stand up for their beliefs and 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 bring something to the table that that, that otherwise uh, may not be out there. One of the candidates that comes to my mind is is if he chooses to run for the the Senate in Pennsylvania again, Dave McCormick. Um, he was down at a um, a retreat um, the governor hosted at Sea Island a few weeks ago, and he was very impressive. Gave um, he's he's written a very um, compelling book about where he sees the country going and his experience um, in the federal government, but also in the private sector that influences his 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 view of where our our body our body politic is headed. I think candidates like that are, are are folks we would like to to look at supporting. But I think the the primary mission of of, of our organization is going to be making sure that um, 
we would deliver Georgia for whoever the Republican nominee is next year. Um, being a federal PAC, we are able to um, engage in federal races, one of which being president. Um, so we look forward to making sure that that we replicate the governor's uh, success or past successes um, for the nominee in 2024. Cody, on Rick? that note, if the if the go if the governor does stay out of the 2024 race in terms of running or not. Um, Will he endorse a presidential candidate in 2024 during the primary before the nomination? And the million dollar question, what if that candidate, what if the nominee ends up being Donald Trump? Do you, do you see your boss uh, going all out to help Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump was uh, put him at the very top of his revenge list back in 2022? Yeah, I, I would be surprised if the governor did not support the eventual nominee, whoever that is. Um, now, in terms of, of of his involvement in the 2024 race, I think that that is up to a whole host of 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 different variables that will change over the next six months. Um, I I would say that if if it comes to pass that there are a few candidates or two candidates that are presenting themselves to the voters of not only Georgia but across the country, and they are um, kind of following the rubric that the governor has laid out, you know, in his RNC speech in Nashville a few weeks ago, he said, number one, we should tell people what we're for. Number two, we should focus on the future. And three, we have to have somebody who can win. If there's a candidate out there um, that matches all three of those criteria as we get through the primary process, that'll be up to the governor whether or not he wants to weigh in. But I, I think that's the lens he's going to be viewing this 2024 race through. And we've already seen Vice President Mike, former Vice President Mike Pence's um, uh, super PAC kind of say that it will it will lean on the governor's playbook um, should the Pence decide to run. But Cody, I want to talk about the governor himself because he has still not ruled out, um, definitively ruled out a run for president. He's keeping his options on the table. What's your gut? I mean, you know him. You're in those inside conversations. Do you think he's interested in becoming a national candidate either in 24 or beyond 28, 32? And, and and does all this talk right now about him potentially dipping a toe into just, you know, keeping his options on the table, does it risk shifting his focus away from Georgia and all the challenges that our state faces? Yeah, I'll take the last point first. You know, anyone that knows the governor um, knows that he is the hard, the hardest working person I've ever met. Um, he's up at 5 a.m. or earlier and um, and does that every day, whether or not he's on vacation or not. Um, I don't think there's there should be any concern from anyone that um, he's taking the his eye off the ball here in Georgia. We just had a, a great legislative session where he delivered on the promises he made last last November, um, working with the members of the General Assembly. But I think, um, you know, as you look. As we all look ahead, I, I I think, again, the governor's done something very unique, and whether he decides to parlay that into future federal office or go out and 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 continue being a small business person, um, I think all those are on the table. So let, let, let me pursue that for, for a couple minutes here, Cody. Um, you, uh, you gave a quote to, I think it was Patricia Murphy, um, who wrote a column about whether uh, Kemp was considering maybe the maybe I think the, the, it started with Greg Bluestein writing a piece saying the language around Kemp's potential bid for the White House has changed a little bit. Um, maybe keeping my options open has become more of the language that's being used. And you said in in the uh, column that Patricia wrote 
People have routinely underestimated Brian Kemp. He has routinely proven them wrong, no matter what the governor decides to do or not to do down the road. I have no doubt he will be successful. All of this does suggest that for whatever reason, you, the governor, others who are behind him, don't want to completely close the door right now on whether or not a bid for the White House might be in his future, correct? Yeah, and I think I I also need to go back and answer part of Greg's initial question because I, I, I did not answer that the first time around. Um, my gut is, look, um, the governor has not been to Iowa. He has not been to New Hampshire. Um, there is a relatively small political staff on our side. Um, it, it's me and a couple of others. Um, so, um, and I think that lines up with his his public comments that um, it's it is not something that we are actively preparing for. But these things can change quickly. And you know, look um, at the end of the day, I think where the governor is most comfortable and where he will have the most influence is is making sure that our nominee wins Georgia, whoever they may be. Um, but then also being a voice of common sense conservatism um, across the country to kind of try to shape where the party's going. Because I think as you've seen in 2022, there are um, there were many Republican candidates that did not focus on the future. They did not tell candidate or the, the voters what they were for, and they ultimately did not win. Um, Cody, before I'd like to move beyond this um, whole question about you know the presidential campaign next year, uh, certainly in terms of Brian Kemp's possible interest in it, except for one last question. Um, a couple minutes ago, you pointed out that in speeches, the governor has made several points about what is needed in a candidate to win, a Republican candidate to win the White House. Uh, number one, you've said a candidate who really can win. Uh, number two, a candidate who is looking to the future. And there was a third point in there that I frankly uh, don't remember off the top of my head. But the point is, I remember in hearing all three of those points, none of them seem to suit where Donald Trump is at right now, which is why it's interesting to me to hear you suggest that if he should be the nominee, Governor Kemp would probably get behind him. Yeah, you know, there were... Um... There was some media coverage surrounding the governor's remarks that that made it seem to be um, a, a direct rebuke of uh, former President Trump. I, I kind of think that that's in the eye of the beholder because he was he was simply saying Republicans running for the White House and Republicans across the country that want to be on the ballot and win in tough races. You have to tell people what you are for, not just what the other side is doing, um, because, you know, we saw in 2022, Joe Biden was very unpopular, but he ended up doing very well in the midterms. But, you know, the voters know why they don't like Joe Biden. At the end of the day, they didn't know why they should like us. So I think that was part of the reason that um, he put that in the remarks. But I think the other thing is, um, look, if, if people think that his remarks were directed at former President Trump, that's a pre that is a problem for uh, former President Trump. Um, if if he decides tomorrow to start focusing on the future and telling people what he would do um, in a second term in the White House, he would fall within that rubric. Wait, wait, Cody, you're not suggesting that those remarks were not, in fact, a rebuke of Donald Trump's uh, bid to win the White House again. Are you really suggesting that? I think it was a message to the entire re Republican field, and um, it... 
it is interesting that thus far it seems that former President Trump has the most trouble staying within that that blueprint. As we saw at the town hall meeting, uh, the town hall last week too, and, and full disclosure, I was one of those journalists who framed it directly as that. I think my headline spoke directly to the uh, rebuke to Donald Trump. Um, Cody, I want to switch subjects a little bit before you've got to go. Uh, plenty of lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have raised concerns about the governor's vetoes and his decision to order agencies to disregard in like dozens of different disregard statements, uh, more than $200 million in the budget. How... how a lot of lawmakers were confused by this, Republicans and Democrats. Was this an executive branch power play? What is the root of this decision? Because we did not see that in previous budget statements, and we have not seen that really from from uh, previous Republican governors either. Yeah, and I'll try to be um, brief here, but it is kind of a um, an in-depth kind of question and answer. I think there are a few things. One, um, there have, you know, you're your colleague, James Salzer, um, I was texting back and forth with him and he said, well, look, there's always been holes in Medicaid over the years. Um, so we don't have to phone a friend and get him to come on here and and explain it all to us. But I think the, the concerning piece is that Medicaid is such an overwhelming piece of the budget that is a year over year commitment um, that this year there was a larger hole than usual, um, over $200 million that um, the General Assembly did not choose to fund based on the governor's recommendations, which is their prerogative. But whenever you look at year-over-year funding in the budget, you can't use a lot of the one-time money that's in state reserves to fill that hole long-term. Your credit rated, your credit rating agencies look um, as you know, kind of sideways at that. Whenever you start doing that, so I think at the end of the day, um, what the governor is trying to do is making sure that we are planning our budget process years in, in advance and making sure that if there is an economic downturn in the latter part of this year or next year, we are prepared and we're not asking agencies to come in and make 5, 10 or 15% budget cuts. That means having to make sure that we don't have long-term liabilities on our books like that Medicaid hole. The other shared priority that the governor has with members of the General Assembly is to continue to lower the state income tax. In order to do that, you have to make sure that um, the base of the budget is sound every year and you continue to have revenues that support lowering the state income tax. They're also looking at tax credits this upcoming uh, summer. Um, so all of those different things, I think what the governor is trying to do is plan ahead, making sure that if there's an economic downturn, we are prepared, but then also make sure that we're not relying on one-time funds to fix um, year over year future budget expenses like Medicaid. But was it also meant to send a signal to lawmakers, particularly in the Georgia Senate, who had squabbled, who had feuded with the governor over cuts to the higher education system and the entire you know debate we saw over um, the Regents and Augusta University's medical center? You know, I I think there was a lot of um, political posturing there. Um, I I think what is what is most important is that, number one, we continue to have a higher education system that makes us attractive to the wealth of businesses that are continuing to look at Georgia to expand and, and relocate, but also that we're, we're preparing a workforce that can go out and, and, and fill those jobs, not only here in Georgia, but around the world. Um, I think that's the governor and the chancellor's priority, um, but also in terms of the AU deal, or Augusta University deal to make sure that um, we are equipping 
the healthcare workforce of the future in our in our state's higher education system. Those priorities um, of the governor, the chancellor, may not have met exactly with the priorities of the members of the Senate, but I think at the end of the day, we'll we'll get there. Um, Cody, let me go back to your explanation of these so-called disregards. Um, I, I look, I'm 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 not good at budgets. I I'm never going to be a James Salzer understanding the arcane process of putting together a budget. But it is my understanding that when you say you uh, you tell agencies to disregard certain uh, lines in the budget, the money is still there. It can't suddenly be moved to cover, say, what you're talking about, a hole in Medicaid uh, funding. So that's one part of it that I'm sort of uncertain about how you're suggesting that those decisions were made with that in mind. But I'm also curious about some of the choices the governor made. Um, the big one being um, telling uh, agencies to disregard the 20 plus million dollars for uh, three, I think three, mental health crisis uh, centers in, in, in the state, the free meals uh, program for children who are eligible for them, uh, those seem to me to be strange choices for the governor to be making, uh, mental health specifically, because obviously uh, the governor has been part of an enormous effort over the last two sessions to do something to reform the mental health system. And then the free meals, is this fairly small amount of money, and, and I'm wondering why you would choose to focus on that. Yeah, and, and specifically on mental health, I think we've increased um, the mental health agency budgets over the last year or two by almost $100 million. So we are drastically increasing our, our, our state's investment in that critical in that critical area. I think what the what we tried to do in the budget very carefully was making sure that we are not committing the state to year over year expenditures in the budget that could potentially either commit the state into new activities that they weren't previously doing or um again try to fill year over year um expenditures with one time funds what i think the disregard language allows um the budget office to do and and bill i, I would agree with you i'm not a budget expert so um don't hold me to the exact letter of this, but I think what the disregard language will attempt to do is allow OPB to, again, as they are um, directing funds to the agencies, keep the economic outlook of the state at the forefront. That if, if it looks like state revenues are starting to lag and are not able to fulfill those budget um, lines that either the General Assembly or the governor um, put in there, um, that they're able to, in real time, control state spending so that we don't get ahead of ourselves and have to make cuts in the amended or the or the big budget next year. The other thing I would say that our, our budget director also pointed out in some of the AJC's coverage is that on 99.3% of the spending, the governor and the General Assembly agreed. Cody, another thing Bill pointed out at the opening of the show is all the, all the steps that uh, Governor Kemp has made to raise his national profile, if not run for president, but raise his national profile, go to Davos, uh, raise money in New York, speak to the Connecticut GOP, um, give that uh, CNN interview that, that was so talked about. Another another development was released today, uh, was revealed today in the fact that the governor is headed to Israel over the weekend for a uh, for a delegation trip 
Economic Delegation Trade Mission. Uh, tell me the purpose of this uh, mission. You know, I've obviously talked to governor staff and others, but do you see this as part of an effort to raise the governor's national profile? I know this was this was always talked about. Other governors have done this, um, but what do you think the impetus behind the trip is? Yeah, I would kind of put this in the bucket um, with Davos that you know the governor is very passionate about making sure that we continue to attract good paying jobs to our state, that we're attracting innovative companies, new companies looking to expand. And Davos was really um, a great opportunity to do that. Unfortunately, because of COVID, the other opportunities to do those overseas trips have been limited for the governor. So this Israel trip, I think, was actually supposed to happen in 2020 um, in that summer and did not. So this is really making sure that we're you know, going overseas to let companies over there know that um, Georgia is a great place to do business. And if they want to move their operations to America, we'd be happy to host them here. And again, to kind of double down on that special relationship Israel has with not only Georgia, but the United States as a whole. He's walking into a very tricky political situation in Israel, obviously, Cody. I mean, um, as you well know, uh, massive demonstrations in the streets opposing uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's plans to uh, remove much of the powers that the Israeli Supreme Court has, um, a lot of concern that ultra-Orthodox uh, religious leaders are much more uh, in control of the country's uh, affairs than ever before. How does the governor avoid getting dragged into uh, some of the conversations that are likely to take place around that, the questions that he might get? while he's there about that. Well, I can tell you, Bill, one of the reasons why I love working for him as a communications professional is that um, if there's ever a question he doesn't really want to answer, he'll say that he's focused on being governor of Georgia and just happy to be there and tell businesses why they should come to Georgia. So um, you, you I think might if want there to talk about like, he, 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 Go ahead. Well, I was just saying, you know, I think if there are questions about um, national security implications or, or internal Israeli politics, I, I, I would, um, I would be very surprised if he chooses to, if he chooses to opine there. You know, Greg, he might even coin a phrase uh, saying what he's there for is to be able to get a chance to meet some hardworking Israelis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and Cody, one last question. Is this? Do you see this as part of an effort, though, to burnish his foreign policy chops? If, if there's a, if there's a big weakness for any governor running uh, or thinking about running on a national stage, it's of course foreign policy. Uh, is this a chance for the governor to show that hey, he does have some some skills, some expertise in in dealing with foreign uh, leaders? Yeah, I think whether it was the the Davos trip, his first overseas trips to South Korea, this one to Israel, he'll have others in the future. Um, look, you know. And, and specifically at Davos, I think he was the only guy up there um, with cowboy boots on. Um, so he's not afraid to be who he is whenever he goes overseas like that. But, um, you know, he he does not get many opportunities to weigh in on these kinds of issues um, of global and, and national implications. But um, in, in my conversations with him, you would be surprised how, how closely he follows a lot of these um, global trends, and especially from an economic development perspective. So um, he, he's no stranger to it. And and uh, I think that this trip will only um, help him learn more about um, some of our partners over in that part of the world, but also um, learn more about some of the challenges they face. Question, and I know we promised to let you go at around halfway through the show, and I, I want to keep to that promise. But if I may, one last question. You're, you're, you're super PAC, which you're 
uh, overseeing uh, is raising a lot of money out there, presumably. Um, are we? You've already mentioned one race that you think uh, the PAC might want to get involved with. Are we going to start seeing relatively soon expenditures to support Republican candidates in other races? And are there others that you might be able to tell us a little bit about before we let you go? You know, Bill, we are really kind of looking at how that that 2024 map um, materializes on, on the Senate front before we really make any other kind of um, considerations. Again, I think our, our primary focus is going to be making sure that the same operation the governor was able to deploy on, on a state level in 2022 is there available for the federal um, candidate, obviously the, the presidential nominee in 24. Any other Senate races? Um, look, the presidential stuff in Georgia is going to be expensive as it is. So we'll have to kind of consider um, any other involvement as as the money comes in. So um, do we look forward to it? I think there are going to be other opportunities, um, but I, I think we're still a few months away from being able to determine if there are other races. So, Cody Hall, um, thank you so much for spending time with us. We do want to keep our commitment to you to let you go. Uh, at a reasonable point in the show, this seems to be a good one, but, but it's um, always a pleasure to uh, have you on and to hear um, your observations about the man you've been working for for quite some time now, Brian Kemp. Cody, thanks so much for being with us. Um, Greg Bluestein and I are going to be back in a minute, and among other things, we're going to talk about a brand new poll that uh, has some interesting news about uh, Republican preferences in the 2024 presidential race. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Greg Bluestein, um, Cody Hall, it seems to me, um, took the same position that we hear from a lot of Republicans, like Ron DeSantis as another example, um, Mike Pence to some extent. Um, it's pretty clear that when Brian Kemp said we need a candidate in 2024 who's going to look to the future, who's not caught up in, in past battles, um, someone who actually can win, it's pretty clear he was talking about Donald Trump. But Kemp, like other Republicans, are simply unwilling to go there um, I find that fascinating. Yeah, we have not even seen that from from Ron DeSantis, even though he's about to be a, a yeah. very close to being a direct rival to Donald Trump. And look, we expect DeSantis and others um, to be more uh, aggressive about Trump once once he actually gets in the race. But look, Governor Kemp's strategy throughout the entire uh, re-election campaign was to avoid saying a single bad word about Donald Trump to not alienate that magus base of supporters focus on the issues he wanted to focus on. Um, now, it's interesting to me, too, there is another Republican who's been in Georgia who's been much more abrasive about Trump, and that's Jeff Duncan. And so a lot of this yeah. rhetoric we're hearing 
um, you know, about focusing on the future, not the past. It's not unique, but Jeff Duncan was the first Georgia Republican to really kind of take that bull by its horns. Um, so this notion that Kemp could mount a, a race for, for the White House in 2024, I thought your colleague, Patricia Murphy, had a pretty good take on that today. Uh, if there were anything really going on there that we haven't seen any signs at all of building an organization in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in staffing up, it, it seems like it's an interesting thing for political junkies to debate. There's no reason why it couldn't happen, but it is awfully unlikely, isn't it, Greg? Very unlikely. I mean, and, and, and I, I frankly don't think it will happen uh, at all this year, but or next year. Um, but in order to be, as one aide told me, as one close camp confidant told me, to in order to be in national conversations, you've got to be in this conversation. And so they want to hold their options open next year in case there's a VP opening, uh, in case there's a cabinet position. Who knows? You know, you just you just don't know what opportunities might arise. And as some Republican strategists and some people in, in Kemp circles say, he could also be this break the emergency glass in case of a disaster type candidate. If DeSantis, if Nikki Haley, if other Trump rivals just falter, fall apart, collapse on the campaign trail, what, what have you, um, and there's no real other alternative to, to Donald Trump, hey, Brian Kemp could be waiting in the wings. But as you mentioned, there's been no apparatus, and my colleague Patricia Murphy did a great job kind of putting a pin on it. There's been no apparatus in Iowa, New Hampshire, not even South Carolina. And another telltale sign to me, Bill, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the governor opposed moving the primary, the presidential primary earlier. Yeah. Uh, President Joe Biden wanted to have Georgia join the ranks of New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina uh, it, with early voting, um, earlier voting. And Brian Kemp's staff, not only did he, not, he didn't just stay neutral, he said he was against that idea. And that would have been, if he was running for president, you'd expect him to want uh, to move that primary up early to have a, uh, you know, use that as a tent pole for his campaign. Yeah. You know, the other race that we didn't uh, 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 ask Cody about, of course, is whether Kemp might have his eyes set on 2026 challenging John Ossoff for that seat in the U.S. Senate. Ossoff's done a pretty good job being out there around the state, appealing to many different constituencies. Um, it's I suspect he'd be a tough candidate to beat. But what, what I find particularly interesting about that is um, it, it might seem kind of appealing in a broad way, but the record of governors who go on to become U.S. senators is not really all that strong. People who've had the chance to be the CEO of a state who end up in the U.S. Senate where they're one of 100 and really have no power whatsoever, uh, it doesn't end well for them quite often. Yeah, I've heard the exact same thing, even from former governors who've told me that that either um, with their decision to run for Senate or um, with their decision not to run for a higher office, because after you have the power, and in Georgia in particular, the governor has tremendous power. Um, it, you know, governors have powers, uh, tremendous power in every state, but Georgia is unique, I think, to a degree um, with the, the decisions over the, the sway over the state budget, over state boards and agencies, and of course, vetoing legislation and dictating the agenda in Georgia. And so, yeah, it wouldn't be easy. Um, at the same time, I, I you know, th there is a keen focus from some of some in the governor's circles on everything John Ossoff is doing. Um, 
remember Mitch McConnell held a, a, a key fundraiser for Brian Kemp. He was the only, at the time, he was the only non-U.S. Senate candidate who McConnell held a fundraiser for. Um, so there is an affinity between uh, those men, and uh, Mitch McConnell plays the long game. So I, I, and also, frankly, being in this 2024 conversation probably only helps Governor Kemp should he run in 2026. So, right, you know, it right. could be, there's, there's a lot of possibilities out there. Right. Let's talk about this uh, poll uh, that Landmark Communications, our friend Mark Roundtree, who runs Landmark Communications, which is a Republican consulting firm as well as a, a polling organization, has released. Um, it, uh, you all write about it in the jolt this morning. It does show that uh, Donald Trump is uh, the leader uh, uh, in this state. But Ron DeSantis is much closer behind in Georgia, according to Mark's poll, than he is in other polls around the country, yes? Yeah, and even in other Georgia polls we've seen. So DeSantis is, yeah. uh, I don't know if it's nipping at the heels, but DeSantis is at 32% in this poll. Um, Donald Trump is at 40%. So it's outside the margin of error of 3.5%, but it's still, uh, it's still right there sort of in the ballpark. And this was a poll of 800 likely Republican voters that also showed Governor Kemp is at 7%. In this poll in Georgia, roughly even with uh, Nikki Haley, uh, we're not sure why. You know, we don't have access to the uh, to the the actual voters who who are in this poll. But you know, one of the reasons why could be because he's not in the race, and there's a lot of as we've talked about a lot of, a lot of uh, skepticism about whether he'll even join the race. Every other candidate, or potential candidate, including Tim Scott, who is preparing to launch his campaign next week and former VP Mike Pence, who started that super PAC to set the stage for his campaign, they're all in single digits. So it speaks to the tremendous challenges ahead. And one other takeaway on the actual top line numbers, only about 6% of voters were undecided. So, you know, we're talking about very known quantities here in the Republican side of the race. You know, that's that was one of the things that stood out for me too, Greg. I mean, here we are many months away, year and a half away, from an, an election, and a little less than that in terms of Republican primary here. But um, to have only 6% of the people saying at this point they already they don't know, everybody else basically knows who they're going to vote for, that can obviously change, but that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think that, that number will actually expand rather than contract in the next few months, yeah. especially as more candidates yeah. get in that race. But no, but, you know, of course, every Republican, every voter knows who Donald Trump is and what his platforms and rhetoric and policy agenda is like. Um, DeSantis is a fixture in, the, in conservative media. One other major takeaway, though, that we wrote about is that it also pointed to some vulnerabil vulnerabilities for Donald Trump because it showed that roughly 56 percent of Republicans gave him a positive approval rating. That sounds that sounds nice and all. Um, about one third saw him in a negative light, but approval ratings for DeSantis and Kemp both hovered around 75%. Um, and I've seen polls with Kemp's approval ratings among Republicans even higher, closer than 90%. So if Trump's at 56, 60% approval ratings uh, among Republican voters, then that is an early sign of, of the trouble he could face in the general election here. Yeah, I think that seems quite clear. Let's do this, Greg. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and continue our conversation on today's Political Rewind.
Greg Bluestein, as long as we've been talking about presidential politics, let's uh, pick up another item or two on that front. Um, that, uh, it was election day yesterday in a number of jurisdictions, including in the state of Kentucky, uh, where a primary campaign for governor was held. Um, and what's fascinating about that race in the context of our conversation now is that at the very last minute, Ron DeSantis decided to jump in and support, endorse uh, a candidate in that race, Kelly Kraft, who'd been part of the Trump administration, um, but who was not doing well in the polling in that race against her uh, Republican opponent, uh, Daniel Cameron. And yet DeSantis jumped in uh, and, and gave her his support. Today, people are talking about the fact that Cameron basically walloped Kelly Craft in the uh, election, and it just made DeSantis look uh, like somebody who doesn't have the clout he thinks he does. But also, my question about this, Greg, is why jump in like this at the last minute? It strikes me DeSantis makes odd choices uh, in, in a situation like this. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a well-thought-out decision, especially when, as you mentioned, the polls were already showing um, you know, his candidate with a clear deficit, and it ended up being a rout at the end of it. I like the New York Times lead, which was on Monday, Governor DeSantis of Florida went out on a limb. On Tuesday, it snapped. Bill, I mean, as yeah. important as that race was, the other one that was just being closely watched was another um, DeSantis-backed candidate up in Jacksonville, which is Florida's largest city. And that candidate also was trounced in a race. And so uh, you know, DeSantis ends up going 0 for 2, and, you know, after a campaign, a midterm campaign, when Donald Trump's record on endorsements was so closely watched, and of course, here in Georgia and, and other places, his his back candidates failed, uh, it, it was a it, bewildering decision in a sense. Uh, I get, I get, I actually understand the Florida one, but to, to weigh in on a, a Kentucky race the way he did at the last minute when his endorsement really, you know, a tremendous amount of people had already voted. In Kentucky, by that point, it, it just it it, it it confounded a lot of pundits. Well, um, we should also point out that uh, that uh, Kelly Kraft lost to uh, uh, Cameron, who not only had the backing of Donald Trump, but was also closely aligned aligned with Mitch McConnell. So again, I, I, it strikes me, Greg, that we've seen a number of instances in which DeSantis, who has shown his mastery over politics in Florida. All you have to do is look at the legislative session he had, the enormous success he had there. Some people can argue about the direction that he's headed, but he certainly has had control over the political uh, 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 world in Florida. But hes he I'm not sure he's quite ready for prime time beyond Florida in some ways. He called, we remember, Ukraine, Russia, uh, territorial dispute. There are just aspects of him that when he's out there on a larger stage, you have to wonder about. Yeah, look, it also speaks to the, you know, the 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 power of endorsements today. And we've had this debate for a long time. What do endorsements really matter? Are they a big sign? Do they sway voters? Certainly in 2018, you can make the case that, that Donald Trump's late endorsement of Brian Kemp helped power him over the top 
over Casey Cagle in that, that runoff. But in other cases, we've seen over and over again, voters might like the candidate. And, and who knows, DeSantis could end up you know, routing Donald Trump, for all we know, next year in the Republican primary in Kentucky. But voters also know their states, and they want to support who they want to back. And they know this, they feel, oftentimes, they feel like they know the state better than any outsider could. All right, let's talk again about Georgia politics. Um, what do you make of the fact that uh, the lieutenant governor, Burt Jones, uh, was in Morgan County at a GOP gathering uh, last night? You report on it in the jolt. And he told the crowd there that he might, in fact, run for uh, governor three years down the road when uh, Governor Kemp, of course, is term limited and can't run Again, he says it's it, he he uh, he says I might. I love the state of Georgia. I enjoy public service. I'm a pretty straight shooter, and sometimes that gets you in trouble. But I'll tell you, I think public service is something you should uh, do. Uh, I I don't think there's much question that Bert Jones has his eye on the governor's mansion down the road. No, not at all. I mean, remember, this was a candidate. This was a this was a state senator who talked openly of running for governor or even U.S. Senate in previous cycles, right, um, and ruled out that and instead ran for lieutenant governor with Donald Trump's backing. But you don't usually hear language like that if, if you're asked, and I listened to the audio of that. I wasn't in Morgan County, but I got a source who sent me the audio. And when I listen to the, usually when you get a question like, hey, are you going to run? Well, you know, I haven't closed any doors, but uh, but my focus is on my job. But no, he went out there and said, I might run. The other interesting thing, to me at least, uh, and remember, he was talking to a group of activists. These are the these are sort of the backbone of the party, the folks who knock on doors and make calls and are willing to spend their their Tuesday nights at a at a at a rainy campaign event rather than with their families. So these are hardcore supporters and Republicans. But uh, he drew laughs when he talked about going to the Georgia GOP convention next week when Kemp and other state officials are boycotting. And he said, it "Sounds like I'm the only statewide elected official going to." It. I hope y'all remember that. So, and look, that's true. He really does hope these activists remember the fact that he is aligning himself much more firmly with the sort of uh, the, the 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 Georgia Republican Party itself, and those and those sort of far those ultra conservative activists than is Governor Kemp and other you'd call them, I guess, more mainstream Republicans. Yeah, I, I I was thinking about that, too. Um, it's, it's something I wish we'd ask Cody about, and it just didn't come up, which is, of course, Brian Kemp has separated himself from the state Republican Party, set up his own apparatus like his uh, super PAC. Uh, but Burt Jones, uh, who was a fake elector and who could still face potential criminal prosecution if a, if a new district attorney uh, is assigned to uh, in, in, in investigate his activity uh, 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 in terms of the fake electors. Um, he's clearly part of that uh, group of Republicans who are still MAGA, Trump-oriented Republican. Look, and, and we've seen a number of steps from Burt Jones uh, toward that end, right? He backed Buckhead Cityhood. That was seen as a as a as support of uh, something that that more far right Republicans backed. Um, he more recently went after DEI initiatives that the University System of Georgia uh, was supporting, and he's butted heads with the governor on a number of issues. I mean, I think they get along on more issues than than they disagree on for sure. But look, some of the issues that they disagreed on are major. And it's going to be interesting to watch how Kelly Leffler, the former U.S. senator, 
um, who is looked at as a potential gubernatorial candidate, Attorney General Chris Carr, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and I think you also might even throw in Agriculture Commissioner Tyler Harper into that conversation because all of them are keeping at least one eye on the governor's race. Now, it's a long way out, but the machinations are already underway. So clearly on our show today, uh, having Cody as a guest for the first half of the show, now talking about Burt Jones um, and other potential Republicans who could run for governor, it's been a show oriented toward Republican Party. What about the other side of the aisle now, Greg? Where are Democrats headed? tell, Tell us about what you've been hearing from Stacey Abrams and her people. She obviously has a much, much lower profile since losing that race. Um, Where is she headed? And who are Democrats likely to look at to uh, join a governor's race in in, in three years from now? You know, it's interesting because void or vacuum is probably an overstatement. Um, There is a much deeper bench in, in Georgia among Democrats than there was just a few years ago. And that's partly because Stacey Abrams work building up that infrastructure. And now you've got two U.S. senators who are Democrats um, and a newcomer, relative newcomers like Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who is already making a, uh, uh, is already becoming a force on the national stage. Um, but at the same time, at the state level, especially after last year's defeats, um, you don't have uh, sort of the go-to response to Governor Kemp's policies and proposals um, that you might have had when you had Stacey Abrams and the Fair Fight group that she founded as the constant sort of other side of the story. And now there's there's other Democrats and there's legislative leaders and there's up and coming new members of the General Assembly. Um, but when you're looking at 2026, one name keeps on coming up, and that's Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who was looking at a statewide run in the past, and she was even looking at running for the legislature before she ended up running for Congress instead. She would be a very formidable candidate. Um, and look, activists still don't count out Stacey Abrams. She certainly hasn't closed the door on a third run. But many activists are saying to me publicly and privately, it's time for the party to move on. We'll see. Stacey Abrams would could, still can write her own ticket probably in a um, Democratic primary. But there's a long way to go until that, too. Um, we're running out of time, Greg, but um, what are the stories that you're really looking at in the weeks ahead? What are the uh, political uh, events uh, um, that that you think are going to be shaping our, our futures in the weeks and months ahead? What What matters to you right now in terms of our politics? Well, I'll be closely watching Governor Kemp's trip to Israel and what comes of that, and also you know, if he takes any more steps onto the national or international stage, the Georgia Republican Convention will be a, a firm marker for where the activists in the party stand, even if it's even if state leaders are kind of sidelining and relegating the party. And of course, on the Democratic side, um, you know, ongoing, I wouldn't say concerns, um, but there are some setbacks for Democrats with the DNC and with early voting and primary. Um, and Kamala Harris's the vice president's visit Friday was a, a pick me up. But Democrats are looking for ways to get energized and engaged uh, ahead of 2024 as well. Greg Bluestein, we're out of time for today's show. I'm really glad that you were here to join me in our conversation with Cody Hall. And I always love he- hearing you talk about politics in Georgia and beyond. That's it. We're out of time for uh, today, but we're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy and be good to one another. Bye-bye.